Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. Well, this is the time in our service where we normally dismiss our our kiddos, but today they're going to stay in here with us the third Sunday of every month. They sit in the service with us, and we share communion together as a church body, uh, and so they're going to be hanging out. And what that means is there might be a little more noise in the room than usual, and so um, I'm okay with that if you're okay with that, and I hope we'll all be okay with that. Um, but if you're a guest with us, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you've chosen to join us in worship this morning, whether you're here in person or online. Uh, when you came in, you should have found a, a card that looks like this in a seat near you, and uh, it's basically a guest card. On one side of that's a place for information about yourself, so we can send you some information about us. Uh, the other side of that's just a place for prayer requests. If there are things we can pray with you or for you about, it'd be our honor to do that. If you do fill out one of these cards, there is a box at the kiosk in the back of the room. You can drop it there on your way out. We'd love to connect with you, answer questions you have, or just pray for you and with you about needs in your life. Uh, so this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Uh, we're going to read quite a bit of text this morning. It's not going to be on the screen behind me. We had some issues with technology this morning, so it's not going to be up here. So if you want to follow along somewhere, you may need to open up your Bible or your app on your phone and follow along as we read together. Uh, but Genesis chapter 6, we'll pick up in verse 9, uh, finishing in 724. So, Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, through Genesis chapter 7, verse 24, as we continue our series entitled Foundations, taking a look at these earliest chapters that we have recorded for us in the Bible. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, reads as follows. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath is the breath of life under heaven." Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to the, their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to, keep, uh, to, in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. 
It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and the and a, and a pair and and and, and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, and also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that God had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and the sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and his and, 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 and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. And it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth. 150 days. This is God's Word. I've always scratched my head a little bit, church, every time I see a new baby boy born into the world and the parents determine that they're going to decorate the children's nursery with the theme of Noah's Ark. Because the story that we have in the scriptures on one hand is a beautiful story of deliverance, is it not? of one family and pairs of animals that are preserved by God and sustained by God. And the covenant sign of the rainbow hung up in the heavens as a promise that the earth will never experience anything quite like that again. On the other hand, it's a dreadful story. 
of judgment triggered by vile human sin and violence. Where men and women rebelled against God and they're met by divine justice as God himself judges all living flesh. Now, I suspect the nursery themes, right, accentuate the boat and the animals and the rainbow, right? Who wouldn't want to accentuate those things while ignoring the violence and the flood and the death of all living flesh? I mean, who would want their infant or their toddler waking up every morning and staring at visions of men running each other through with spears and drowning beneath the waters of a flood, right? Nobody's going to want their children waking up to that. And yet here we have that story staring us straight in the eyes. And I think our tendency, right, to to accentuate the positive, right, and neglect and ignore the negative, It reveals a tendency in us because we want to rush past the judgment to get to the deliverance. But I tell you this morning, church, there is no deliverance without judgment. It doesn't exist. Now, judgment or God's divine anger, his wrath against sin, it's not a topic that people are quickly signing up for in seminars and conferences. There's not, right, new specials being released on right now media about God's judgment and impending anger and wrath against sin. In fact, we're quite uncomfortable with the notion of divine judgment and anger in our modern Western culture. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to address it. We don't like to hear messages on it. And yet it's staring us dead in the eyes in this passage. And so I've titled this message this morning, The Truth About Judgment. The Truth About Judgment. But before we can get to what I believe to be several truths in this text revealed in the flood story about God's judgment, and I I believe there's even a pattern here for other judgments that we see coming in the history of mankind and one that lies still on the horizon in the final judgment. Before we can get to some of these truths, I think we need to do a little bit of work to prepare ourselves to hear the truths themselves. Because God's judgment is built upon His nature as a just and holy God. But we don't like to talk about God's justice in modern America, only about God's love. We talk a lot about God's love, but I would submit to you this morning that unless God is a just God whose anger is kindled against sin, then He is not a loving God. He's not a loving God. Let me see if I can illustrate to you this way. Many people have a hard time with this notion of the wrath and the anger of God which stirs up his justice and his judgment. And if that's you, you need to see that the absence of wrath or anger against sin is also simultaneously the absence of love. Because the, op- the opposite is also true. Like when, when, when you have the presence of love, then there must be wrath or anger whenever that love goes unrequited or betrayed. See, wrath and anger are kindled precisely because love, real love, true love, deep love is present. If there is no anger or wrath when sin is committed, then there is no love. Listen, if I can illustrate it for you this way... If I say that I deeply love my wife, right, that I deeply care for her, my affections are for her and her only amongst all the women of the earth, and she sins against me in an egregious manner, which she would never do, I trust. And I say, 
shrug my shoulders and say, oh well, better luck next time. Then I don't really love her. Right? Because you might say that in relationships, the depth of love determines the extent of anger whenever that love is betrayed, whenever that love goes unrequited. So for instance, if I have a professional acquaintance with someone, and I, I like them, right? We get along, we share some common interests, and they violate my trust. There may be a minimal degree of anger, but if my spouse, whom I deeply love, have entrusted my heart to and shared the peaks and valleys of life with, raised children with, and she violates my trust, there'll be a greater degree of anger because the degree of love, the depth of love, determines the depth of anger whenever that love is violated. And so the question is this, church, what if there was one whose love was eternal in degree? It was a part of his very person and nature. Then here's what would happen. The violation of his trust, the violation of his love, to sin against him, it would produce an eternal anger because the depth of anger is determined by the depth of love. So you cannot have a loving God without having a just God who, whose anger is stirred at sin. Now the second pillar that we have to lay before we even get to the truths of this text is this. That without the guarantee of divine judgment, church, we would live in an endless cycle of violence and vengeance. And violence and vengeance. See, Miroslav Volf, and I pull his quote out every once in a while because I think it's so spot on. He was a Croatian philosopher and theologian who lived through the Croatian War for Independence in the early 1990s. It began in 1991 whenever Croatia declared its independence from the former communist state known as Yugoslavia. And whenever they declared their independence, Yugoslavia invaded Croatia, committing all sorts of atrocities and war crimes and genocide. And having lived through that sort of violence, then his voice on the matter of violence and vengeance has a certain gravitas to it, a certain weight that it carries. So I want you to hear what he has to say. He says, my thesis, his assertion, he says is this, that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. He says, my idea will be unpopular with many people in the West. But imagine for a moment speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground. Whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. And your point to them as you speak to them is this, we should not retaliate. But why not? What will ever keep them from retaliating? I say this, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to judge and take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the idea that human nonviolence is the result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked with the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. 
If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence through his judgment, that God would not be worthy of our worship. He's saying that the only way to escape the endless cycles of violence and vengeance is to believe that there will be divine judgment. That vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We don't give ourselves to thoughts like this very often. Because thoughts of judgment and of God's anger and God's wrath, they don't align with our best life that we're trying to live now. But I want you to hear one more final quote from an old Anglican bishop named J.C. Ryle. He says this, he says, Death and judgment and eternity, they are not fancies, imaginations, but stern realities. He says, make time to think about them. Stand still and look them in the face. You will be obliged one day to make time to die, whether you are prepared or not. And once we die, we do face judgment, church. So what truths do we see in this story of the flood that become a pattern for other judgments throughout the Bible and the judgment that is to come? I want you to see four truths here and then one response. The first truth is this, is that God's judgment, it is reasonable. It is reasonable. And when I say that God's judgment is reasonable, it is to say that He is just, that He is rational, and that He is sensible in His judgment. See, oftentimes whenever we say that someone is reasonable, what we're saying is that they possess a certain quality that means they can be reasoned with. In other words, they can be persuaded by rational arguments. They're not given to just explosive, uncontrolled emotions. They're good and they are sensible and they are rational. And if you can give them solid reasons, then they can be persuaded. And so when I say God is reasonable, I mean He has a sound, airtight judgment. He's fair and sensible. He's not unjust. Rather, he's just. So he's not taking bribes. Nobody's slipping cash under the table to get God on their side to rain down his judgment upon their enemies. But that God is reasonable, rational, sensible, deliberate. He's not reckless or impulsive. Now, impulsive behavior, right, we're familiar with that type of behavior, aren't we? Those of us who are parents. And for some of us who are the grandparents, with our adult children. Right? Impulsive behavior is marked by acting without consideration, without investigation, without research, without forethought of the consequences. For instance, when you make an impulsive purchase. Uh-oh. When you make an impulsive purchase, you're purchasing something as the result of your whims, the whims or desires of your heart in that moment without future consideration, right, or forethought about the impact that it's going to have on your monthly budget. It's an impulse purchase. You don't necessarily do the research on it. That's what impulsive behavior is. But God is not impulsive. He's thoughtful, deliberate, and willful. And so what is God's rationale then for issuing judgment here in the text? Look at with me, look at look with me at verses chapter 6 verses 11 and 12. 
where we find the rationale for God's judgment. He says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. There is an emphasis here by the author on the corruption that has occurred within the culture. That word corruption shows up seven times or it's various ways it's translated seven times throughout the story and what that word corrupt means is literally this it means to spoil it means to spoil now we know what it is for things to spoil any of you who enjoy a good fillet of salmon perhaps have come across fillets of salmon that are not good but that are actually spoiled Right? I love seafood. Some of you can't stand the smell of seafood. I love seafood. Maybe it comes from where I grew up, about 30 minutes from the Gulf. But I love to eat seafood. And I love to grill a good filet of salmon. But I have purchased salmon before. I thought I can get away with it. It's right there near the, expir- uh, the sell-by date. And so I'm going to buy it because it's marked down. However, two days later when I opened the fridge to go ahead and prepare that fish to put it on the grill, something had happened. And it was not the same fish that I saw in the store. Right? Because fish does have a tendency to spoil quickly. And whenever it spoils... It changes, doesn't it? This physical characteristics change. It changes in color. That piece of pink flesh that I was going to put on the grill had now begun to develop these streaks of orangey-brown in it. What used to be firm is now slimy. Right? You ever seen a, piece of, a, a spoiled piece of fish? It gets really slimy on top, like a coating on top of it. And the kicker... What used to smell like a fresh piece of fish now smells like something. (laughs) But not fish, right? It smells horrendous because it is spoiled. And the reason it's spoiled is because there are certain enzymes and bacteria in that meat that are acting on it to change its color, to change its texture, and to change its odor. And I find it very interesting that the word that Moses uses when he speaks of the deterioration of the culture is that it had spoiled. It had corrupted. Its texture had changed. Its color had changed. Its odor had changed. It was no longer pleasing or pleasant in the eyes of God. But it was a foul stench in his nostrils. In verse 11, we're told that the reason it had spoiled was because of the presence of a certain enzyme or bacteria that Moses says is violence. The word violence in the Hebrew is, is the word Hamas. Think the terrorist organization. There's a reason they chose that for their name. It describes both physical and ethical violence. One commentator said it's the cold-blooded and unscrupulous infringement of the personal rights of others motivated by greed and hate and often making use of physical violence and brutality. And if you notice in verse 13, God said to our first parents back in the garden, be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth. But in verse 13, we're told that as mankind multiplied, they filled the earth with violence. With violence. And so the culture was corrupt. So God's judgment, when he issues the verdict, is not impulse. It's not willy-nilly. It's been a long time since I've heard that word. It's reasonable. 
It's rational, a just response to the spoiling and corruption of his good creation. God's judgment, church, is reasonable. Second of all, his judgment is announced in advance. It's announced in advance. See, God doesn't just wake up on the wrong side of the bed one day like you and I, and then everyone feels our wrath the rest of the day, right? He doesn't just go off half-cocked in a moment because of his explosive emotions, but rather he announces his intention in advance. In 6.13, God announces his intention to judge the earth. That judgment is coming, he says. He says he's going to destroy the earth that had corrupted itself. And that word destroy, I find it very interesting because that word destroy is the same word used for corrupt earlier in the text in verse 12. So there's a sense of poetic irony here or justice because just as the people had corrupted the earth, so God will, they had spoiled the earth. God's going to spoil the earth himself to keep it from providing for their needs by sending a flood to cover the, the, the earth. And here's the picture. Humankind, men and women, they cannot undermine the moral fabric of society without endangering the very existence of that society. Right? Because when you begin to pull the pillars out from underneath that uphold and undergird a just world and society, what happens is that world will eventually collapse upon itself. It'll spoil to the point, right, where it is destructive. And God says that's the point that it is indeed reached. In 6.17, God announces how he will judge the earth, which is the reason he commands Noah to build the ark. He says it will be through a massive, never before, never again seen flood. But God does not open the floodgates without advanced warning. He announces his attention in advance. My family, we love to travel to Beaver's Bend up in southeast Oklahoma. Uh, and one of the things we enjoy doing there is hiking. We hike along the Mountain Fork River. Uh, and as you hike along the Mountain Fork River, there are little pockets and pools where you can obviously fish for trout, right? Uh, and so we'll do a little fishing there along the Mountain Fork River. But as you make your way below the dam on Broken Bow Lake along the Mountain Fork River, what you're going to come across at various junctures are these signs. And the signs read something like this, right? That whenever you hear the siren blaring, right, take Ref, essentially take refuge as a warning siren preparing you that they're releasing water from the dam and as they release that water the, 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 the water level in the river could rise very rapidly right but there is an advance notice it's coming downstream there's a siren that's going off and verses 13 and 17 are like the siren blaring in the ears of Noah's generation saying, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. And you see this pattern throughout the Bible, church. In fact, much of the ministry of the prophets is warning God's people, both the northern and southern kingdoms, Judah and Israel, that God is going to, has grown weary of their sin. He's going to raise up the Assyrians for one, the Babylonians for the other, to come in and judge them, take them away into captivity. And the prophets are warning about this, calling the people to repentance. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, announces judgment in advance, sometimes in parables, like the parable of the net and the fish. 
And sometimes in prophecy, as he preaches the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 to 26, the apostles write about judgment to come, warning all who hear with their words. Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. See, the warning signs have been sounding in every generation because God does not bring about judgment without announcing His intention in advance. Third, the reason He announces His intention in advance is to allow time for repentance. To allow time for repentance. See, the patience of God is put on display as He waits to give those alive in the days of Noah an opportunity to turn from their sin, to repent. In chapter 6, verse 4, we didn't read that this morning, we read it last week. We're told that God waited patiently for 120 years from the announcement of judgment to the actual carrying out of the flood. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters burst forth, we're told, upon the earth. But God waited in patience. He waited in patience to see any and all and save any and all who would repent. And yet at the end of the day, there were only eight on aboard that boat, including Noah himself and all the animals. And I want to tell you something. God continues to wait in patience. Perhaps the most often quoted scripture regarding the patience of God is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, which comes right before the verse I just read earlier in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. In verse 9, it says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach, what? Repentance. So God's patience is purposed for our repentance. That we should turn from sin and trust in Him. Give up our violence. Give up the corruption, the spoiling of culture. And embrace a life of righteousness. Even as Noah had done. God is patient, church. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Not yet the thunderbolt. Not yet the riven heavens and reeling earth. Not yet the great white throne and the day of judgment. For he is very pitiful. In other words, not God, we use that word in multiple ways. God is full of pity. And he bears long with men. God is indeed patient. But in the end of the story, we know that the forecasted flood. God's not like our meteorologist. Right? He never gets it wrong. The forecasted flood arrives. In the latter part of chapter 7, in verses 11 and 12 and 17 to 20, we read about that flood bursting forth upon the earth and about the impact of it in all flesh in whose nostrils was the breath of life, dies. It's a sobering reality. God announces it in advance, gives time for people to repent. And yet in the end, judgment is issued. Fourth, that judgment is final. Is final. In 716, we read after Noah 
and his family board the ark and bring aboard the animals, we read this. The Lord shut him in. Other translations may say it this way. The Lord closed the door. There was a finality in that moment in which God issued judgment distinguishing between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous aboard the boat and the wicked outside of it. Listen, we saw for quite some time last December as we worked through the new heavens and the new earth, how in the coming of the new heavens and the new earth, there will be those who are inside the city of Jerusalem and there will be those who are outside of its walls. Those who are inside, the righteous. Those who are outside, the wicked. Same is true here in the story of Noah. Noah and his family inside the boat. The rest of humanity outside the boat. And as a result of them being outside the boat, when the waters begin to rise, there is no escape for them. And all flesh in whose nostrils was the breath of life dies. I want to read to you one more time the sobering account in verses 21 and following. All flesh that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. The reason the judgment is final, church, is because in the judgment is death. It is death. You still want to decorate your kid's nursery with Noah's ark. There is the promise. There is the rainbow. And we'll get to that. But listen, there is a sobering judgment. So how do we respond in light of these truths? Let me give you three things briefly as we close this morning. First, I want you to know in light of this sobering reality that God provides a way of escape. So you've got to get ready for judgment, church. And God has provided a way of escape. In verses 14 to 16 of chapter 6, right on the heels of announcing his intention to judge, I want you to notice the order. God says, judgment's coming. Says Noah, build a boat. Right? He announces his intention to judge, and then he provides a way of escape. And he gives Noah all the specifications and all the parameters for the size of the boat. Noah explicitly receives commands from God on the construction of an ark to preserve his life, to start over after the flood. In other words, after judgment comes, life will resume on the earth, and God has provided a way to escape the coming judgment. And listen, church, there is another judgment coming at the end of this age for which God has provided a way of escape. See, there is another artifact made out of wood. So it's not a boat, it is a cross. 
And in providing the cross as a means of escape from judgment, God sent His Son to bear our judgment Himself. He stood in our place there, bearing God's wrath and anger against our sin to absorb that so that we wouldn't have to bear it in the final judgment so in the final judgment that's coming one day, you only have two choices. Either you will bear the wrath and anger and judgment of God against your sin because we have spurned His love. Or Jesus will have borne your judgment for you. There are no other options. But God has provided a means of escape. You've got to know that. But second of all, in the same way that he provided a means of escape for Noah. He's provided a means of escape for us. But in the same way that Noah had to trust God's provision for the means of escape. So you and I have to do the same. See in chapter 7 verse 1 God gives Noah another command. In chapter 6 the command is build the boat. In chapter 7 it's get on the boat. Go into the ark. See, it was not enough for Noah and his family to build a boat and know there was a boat. There's the boat sitting right over there. Right? It wasn't enough. In order for the boat to have any blessing for Noah and his family, they had to get aboard the boat. Because the boat was the only way to escape the judgment that was coming. And listen, in the same way that God has provided a means of escape for the judgment at the end of this age, it is not enough for you and I to know there is a means of escape. It is not enough for us to be able to recount the details of the cross, the details of the crucifixion, to know how many times Jesus was lashed, to know where the nails were driven, to know where the crown on thorns was placed on his head, to know where he was punctured in his side. It is not enough just to know that God provided his son as a substitute for our sin and his judgment against it. It's not enough. We have to trust the provision that he's made. Place our confidence and faith in the provision that he's made. Depend upon Christ and Christ alone. See, Noah could not say, God, I'm just going to doggy paddle here right next to the boat, right, for the next 40, 150 days, right? It didn't work. He couldn't outswim the judgment of God. And listen, you cannot outlive the judgment of God. So either, either you will have the wrath and anger of God against our spurning of His love poured out upon you, or you will trust in the one upon whom it was poured out, Jesus Christ. There was only one way to escape the flood. And listen, there's only one way to escape the coming fire. The third thing I would tell you to do to get ready for judgment, and the last thing is this, is to be a preacher of righteousness. In 2 Peter chapter 2, we find this interesting Interesting note about Noah and what he's called in 2 Peter chapter 2. It says that he was a preacher or a herald, some of our translations say, one who proclaimed righteousness. And listen, though we don't have any evidence of any sermon that Noah ever preached, right, recorded in the Bible or anywhere else, 
What we're told in the scriptures earlier, and we saw this last week, is that Noah's righteousness shined brightly in a dark world. The way that Noah lived his life was like a sermon. Holding forth the righteousness of God. The commands of God. As he obeyed God. We said last week that he was blameless, right? It was complete. There was no area of his life in which he was going, I'm just going to ignore that and focus on this. But rather, every area of his life was commendable because he was pursuing righteousness. Not that he was perfect in every area, but he was pursuing righteousness in every area. So he was a righteous man, none like him in his generation. And as such, he was a herald of righteousness. And listen, church, we in this generation are those who have been preserved by God as objects of His grace to be heralds of righteousness, to be those lives who would testify to the goodness of God, the goodness of His commands, to how good and pleasing it is to walk in His ways. And so as we prepare for judgment, as we get ready for judgment, not only do we need to know He's provided a way of escape and and trust that way of escape, place our faith in it, but we also live in such a way so that whenever others see our lives, it's like a sermon about righteousness and living in accord. Because you will and I will. And when we fail, we say, hey, listen, I'm not trusting in my right. This is the sermon, right? I'm not trusting in my righteousness, but I'm trusting in the righteousness of someone else to save me. And out of that trust, then, I'm aiming to live my life to glorify Him by living in righteous ways. I don't always do it, but that's what I'm aiming for. And that's how we become a preacher of righteousness. Listen, this is, I, I get it, right? There's not a whole lot of smiles on your faces this morning, right? That tends to happen whenever you talk about judgment, But we cannot ignore it if we want to celebrate the deliverance that God has brought. Because apart from judgment, listen, grace loses its luster. It's no longer like that brilliant diamond we talked about last week. Because without judgment, grace is just like a river rock. So think about it, church. Consider the truths of God's judgment, the truth about God's judgment. And then prepare for it. Get ready. Trust the provision that he's making. If you've never done that, listen, I want to invite you to do that this morning. You can do that by placing your confidence in Christ. That's what it means to get on the boat. To get on the ark. As to say, listen, God, I know I know that there is that your if your standard is perfection God I know that I fall short. But you have sent one who was perfect in my place. And I trust in him and not myself. I trust in his record to make me right with you, not my record. 
And if you've never done that this morning, listen, after our service, I'll be at the back at the kiosk. I would love to visit with you, pray with you about how you can place your faith, your trust, your confidence in Christ. So that at the end of the age, it will not be you who is bearing the judgment of God because of sin. Because Christ has borne that for you. You've got to get on the boat. And if you're on the boat, listen. Be a preacher of righteousness. Let your life preach a sermon. Through your obedience and through your disobedience and where you turn in your disobedience to the righteousness of Jesus himself. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through his word. And if you don't know Jesus as your savior, I invite you to trust him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church. But tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.